ending the war on terror in a world that's still perilous. Today, Friday, May 24th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. New concerns about global terrorism after twin suicide bombings in Niger and a new security scare aboard a passenger plane in Britain. We'll hear about both incidents and discuss President Obama's vision of a war on terror that eventually ends. Plus, we'll find out what radicalized this former extremist. As a 19-year-old undergraduate at Cambridge University, I actually traveled to Afghanistan to train and fight with the Mujahideen against the Afghan communist forces. After 9-11, al-Qaeda even tried to recruit me. And later in the program, what draws people into anime subculture? Just the excitement of people dressing up and getting to pretend to not be themselves, but to be someone else. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We begin today with a story out of the West African nation of Niger. And it's a story that seems to illustrate the complicated nature of the global fight against terrorism right on the heels of President Obama's counterterrorism speech yesterday. What happened in Niger is this. Islamist militants launched two suicide bombings yesterday. One targeted a uranium mine run by a French company. The other hit a military base. About 20 people were killed in addition to the bombers. And today, French special forces helped Niger's military secure the military base, where it turns out two militants were still hiding in a dormitory. They were shot dead in the operation. Thomas Fessy is the BBC's West Africa correspondent. He's in Dakar, Senegal. He says the attacks in two separate cities were very well coordinated. It's um, a sort of joint organized attack uh, by the well-known uh, former al-Qaeda's field commander named Mokhtar Belmokhtar. Remember, he was the one who organized the um, spectacular attack earlier in um, January this year in Algeria against a gas plant where a few dozens uh, Westerners and oil workers died there. He jointly organized this attack with an Islamist militant group that is operating in northern Mali and called Mujao. I mean, most likely they were able to come through southern Libya, which would confirm suspicions that uh, these groups operating in northern Mali were able to flee elsewhere in the region to relocate and uh, strike again, as they have said they would do. So it sounds like what you're saying, what the conventional wisdom is, that uh, these attacks in Niger were a result of spillover from the conflict in Mali. Yes, exactly. I think there is a little doubt that ever since the French intervened in northern Mali early in uh, January, at the end of January, the al-Qaeda groups and their allies had said that they would strike any French interest in the region or any African country that would participate in the Pan-African force that is deployed in northern Mali at present. And obviously Niger uh, has been at the front line of those uh, forces participating in the uh, conflict. They have already been targeted in northern Mali, but um, didn't suffer any casualty there. This is the first time that they suffer such an attack on their territory, first time they actually suffered from a suicide attack, and this is one of the bloodiest attacks since the French intervention in northern Mali. 
Well, I mean, yesterday we heard from President Obama on the way forward with counterterrorism. What do you think these attacks in Niger say about the effectiveness of an intervention uh, by a small number of French troops in Mali? Well, I think that on the one hand, everybody sort of uh, recognizes that the uh, rapid intervention from the French has been quite uh, successful in a way that they managed to strike at the heart of al-Qaeda's basis in northern Mali. On the other hand, it will take much more time to make sure that these combatants will not come back and strike again in northern Mali or be able to re-establish themselves as they have been able to do over the past decade. And certainly what they are proving right now is that they are able to move and move very fast across the Sahel region, either through southern Algeria, southern Libya and northern Niger, all of which are neighboring to northern Mali. Thomas Fessi, BBC West Africa correspondent, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. There was a new security scare in Britain today. Fighter jets scrambled to intercept a commercial plane after reports of an incident on the flight. The plane was carrying more than 300 passengers from Pakistan to Manchester, England. It was diverted instead to Stansted Airport, north of London. Two passengers were arrested on suspicion of putting the aircraft in danger. But British police say the incident is not being treated as terrorism. The scare comes just two days after the brutal killing of a soldier on the streets of London by men shouting Islamist slogans. The BBC's Angus Crawford is at Stansted Airport. Well, we know that the Pakistan International Airways flight took off from Lahore in Pakistan at about half past nine local time, and it was en route to the English city of Manchester. And at about half an hour out from landing, there was some kind of incident on board. We don't know exactly what. We've heard from various witnesses, both on the plane and from the airline itself, that there was some kind of argument, possibly some kind of threat. Certainly the police here say that a threat was made to the safety of passengers and at that point the emergency procedures were put into operation the aircraft was diverted to London's Stanton Airport and it was escorted all the way here by a typhoon fighter jet of the Royal Air Force. Right, well authorities are saying their investigation is pursuing a criminal angle and not a terror uh, angle. How serious was this or was it just a case of British jitters right now? I think it was a case of playing everything by the book. There were reports of an incident, a uh, danger to the aircraft. So following the regulations essentially which have been in place since 9-11, this aircraft was escorted by the fighter jet. When it landed, it was then escorted by vehicles here to the northern side of the airport, a rather remote area, which has been used in the past in both hijack and suspected terrorist incidents. Armed police did then go onto the aircraft. They took off two men, so they took it very seriously. Forensic teams are still on the scene. A bomb disposal unit was on the scene, but so far police say they've found no suspicious items on board. Getting an escorted fighter jet uh, along your wing could have really worried passengers. What did they say? Well, it was interesting. One of the passengers who we heard from said that the captain of the aircraft didn't tell them why they were diverting, remained very calm and just said they had to divert. And only once when they were on the ground did uh, he make it clear. I think, to be fair, the passengers may not have seen the fighter jet because from the pictures, the images I've seen, the fighter jet was trailing behind the aircraft. So it's possible that the majority of passengers only knew that they were being diverted, but not for what reason. So a tempest in a teapot, but a potentially dangerous situation that was played by the book. 
Well, I think at the moment, as you say, people are very much on alert since the horrific events in South London of two days ago where a young soldier was, was murdered. People are very much uh, on alert and they don't want to take any chances. And this is simply following the procedures. In the event of this kind of event, these, uh, an aircraft is diverted to this airport or another which specialise in these kinds of incidents. All right, Angus, thanks so much. Thank you very much. The BBC's Angus Crawford there. Now, the suspects in the gruesome killing of that British soldier, Lee Rigby, were converts to Islam. One of them was associated with al-Muhajirun, a banned Islamist terrorist organization. So what attracts people to extremism? We asked someone who embraced it for several years. Usama Hassan is now with the Quilliam Foundation in London, which promotes pluralism and tries to prevent the disaffected from embracing extremism. But for many years, he was a Muslim extremist. Hassan says it started in his teenage years as he struggled between two cultures in 1980s Britain. As a teenager, I suppose I experienced an identity crisis like most uh, Muslims of our age because we were caught between two worlds. Parents who were often from India, Pakistan, very devout, and we were plunged into a 80s London, you know, post-sexual re- revolution where religion was hardly uh, important at all. Two very different uh, cultures and value systems, if you like, on the surface anyway. As a child, you experience that kind of tension. And that void was filled by the radical group which had been set up by a charismatic preacher who taught that your most important identity is as a Muslim and there is a global war going on between Muslims and the rest and therefore we have to be united and we have to unite the Muslims and then fight back, carry out jihad against uh, non-believers. As a 19-year-old undergraduate at Cambridge University, I actually travelled to Afghanistan to train and fight with the Mujahideen against the Afghan communist forces. After 9-11, Al-Qaeda even tried to recruit me and I travelled to Saudi Arabia to meet uh, a couple of their handlers. And uh, luckily I came back and politely said no. I didn't want to be part of that. Why not? Even though I, I knew instinctively that uh, after 9-11 this was going to be a, a battle of ideas. And also the opposed to terrorism. I'd always been opposed to terrorism, attacking civilians. Our generation travelled thousands of miles to Afghanistan or Bosnia to fight in what we saw as a legitimate war, a just cause. The idea of attacking civilians in your own city, in your own neighbourhood, was just totally repugnant. And the July the 7th bombings in '05 were a massive wake-up call for me because I realised the next generation of radicals had now taken on board al-Qaeda's rhetoric to say that uh, because Britain and America have invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, they have taken the war back into their shores, into Britain and the US, and everybody is a legitimate target there now. Um, uh, hence the... Uh, attacks on the London buses and trains. So the Boston bombings reminded a a lot of British Muslims of July 7, 2005? Yes, absolutely. The same kind of thing, young people who'd grown up in America but had been fed this hatred and this ideology, this twisted ideology which uh, justified attacking civilians and creating a war zone in a place where there isn't a war. You know, even the appearance, uh, two young men with their uh, baseball caps and uh, sporting gear with rucksacks, We had four young men with rucksacks and sporting gear and baseball caps who attacked London. So what strikes you about the two men who hacked to death this British soldier the other day in London? I mean, they they were born Christian from what I understand. That's right. They are of Nigerian descent. They were Christian. They converted to Islam some years ago while at college. And uh, they clearly had fallen in with radical groups who were preaching an even more hate-filled version of uh, extremist religion than we were 20 years ago. 
some of the next generation, perhaps because they had less strong links with traditional Muslim countries, seem to have lost any sense of spirituality or depth and are really consumed by politics and anger and hatred and the idea of revenge and this uh, imagined idea of Muslims suffering abroad. Muslims dying every day. One of the Woolwich attackers said there are Muslims dying every day. Well, there are people of all faiths dying every day. You know, life and death is uh, is a part of life. I mean, these, these are all very pointed messages, and there is a large Muslim population in London. Many families have been there for generations, and most are not extremists. So what is this small group that is still listening to these messages? Unfortunately, th- there are a number of groups around the country still peddling these messages, and what doesn't help is that uh, we have a number of preachers from around the world, especially the Arab world, also India, Pakistan, who uh, also teach this kind of hatred and who have spawned a generation of British preachers who are even more dangerous because they have hatred in their hearts to Western society around them. But they're also eloquent. They're eloquent in English. And they're actually just continually reinforcing those messages. There's a lot of groupthink so that uh, these uh, groups don't expose themselves to mainstream society, to wider society, who could challenge their views, because they say, well, it's all corrupt, it's all evil and immoral Western civilization, which we want no part of. And so they reinforce those extremist messages. I mean, these are cult-like groups, which have a lot of similarity with gangs, with violent gangs. There are many similarities regarding that. Have you found, though, that there are certain personality types drawn to the extreme Islam message? There are a wide range of personalities drawn to this message, unfortunately. Many of these people are very poorly educated in in religion. They're easily taken in by radical preachers. Many of them are uneducated, of course, but others are highly intelligent, who are university graduates and students. And the the more intelligent ones are drawn to the political aspect of extremist uh, ideology, because they see that as a powerful uh, political message which makes sense, and, and they feel inspired that they want to change the world, as we once did, and to you know take on the West and uh, and other powers. Osama Hassan used to believe in Muslim extremism. Now he's involved in trying to prevent it through his work with the Quilliam Foundation in London. Osama, thanks very much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. So how do these stories of ongoing security threats fit in with President Obama's vision of a war on terrorism that eventually comes to an end? We further that conversation next here on The World. You're listening to PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In his big speech on counterterrorism yesterday, President Obama said America is at a crossroads in its fight against terrorism. He said it's no longer a boundless war on terror, but a more focused fight that eventually, he said, will end. But what exactly does this mean going forward? We asked Jessica Stern to stop by the studio. She's an expert on American policy on terrorism and a lecturer at Harvard University. Well, I think he's distinguishing between a systematic effort to dismantle terrorist networks and a global war on terrorism, which involves massive amounts of U.S. troops in theaters of war. They're different kinds of policies, in my view. It was interesting to hear Obama speak yesterday and then the day before hearing from the White House 
admission in the death of Anwar al-Awlaki and three others, including his 16-year-old son. So for you, what really has changed then? The doctrine has changed. The doctrine will involve a greater reliance on more traditional responses to terrorism, which include, in fact, a very dangerous one for the U.S., which is more reliance on intelligence penetrating these groups. That's dangerous, but I think more effective. It sounds like you feel that what uh, President Obama laid out yesterday is reasonable, but, I mean, the devil will be in the details, won't it? Yes, there's a certain amount of vagueness, you're right, in the speech. On the one hand, we're ending the global war on terrorism. On the other hand, we are going to be involved in a systematic effort to dismantle terrorist networks around the globe. I see it as a pullback from an overt military response. Do you have in your mind kind of a vision that if all these things do take place, if this perpetual wartime footing is replaced by something else, could the U.S. ever go back to a pre-9-11 kind of environment? I don't think we will be going back to a pre-9-11 environment. While the threat is significantly reduced, we are much more aware of that threat. Those of us who work on terrorism thought we were ignoring a major threat before 9-11. And it would be foolish for us to go back to that state of affairs. At the same time, we need to recognize that terrorism is not in any way the greatest threat to American lives. Driving a car, the weather, those are much more significant threats to American lives than terrorism. And maybe uh, people are more realistic now. It's no longer just uh, planes flying into big buildings. But after we saw with the lone wolf people in London and the Boston Marathon bombings, it's right here in our backyard, isn't it? It's right here in our backyard. And I think the president is right that we cannot eradicate every kind of terrorism. There will always be people with malevolent intent. We can go after the networks. But responding as we did after 9-11 in many ways was counterproductive. And I think the president is spelling that out, saying we have better ways to reduce this threat than going to war. Remains to be seen, though, what those better ways are. It does. Well, Jessica Stern, thanks for coming by and speaking with us. Thank you. Our geo-quiz comes from space. We're looking for the name of a satellite launched by the South American nation of Ecuador. Yep, they've got a space program, too. Their satellite, their only satellite, has been involved in what you might call a fender bender. It collided with a piece of orbiting space debris. The Russians say it may be some old junk left over from a Soviet rocket. Ecuador's satellite is actually what's known as a nanosatellite. It's a tiny computer with solar wings, and it's named after a constellation in the northern night sky. The stars form the shape of a winged horse famous in Greek mythology. Okay, let's head straight to the answer now via Ronnie Nader. He's an Ecuadorian astronaut and the director of his country's space agency, EXA. The collision occurred 1,000 miles southeast of Madagascar. It was not a frontal collision, it was a lateral collision with the remains of a Soviet rocket known as Cyclone. It was with a cloud, with a cloud of particles. 
uh, they were uh, pretty small particles, but enough to put uh, Pegasus in a tumbling right now. So right now, uh, we know that uh, he survived. He still transmits, uh, but uh, he's in tumbling, so we cannot get a fix on his signal. Right, so Pegasus is the name of the Ecuadorian satellite, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. NEE-01 Pegasus. So describe Pegasus. How big is it and what does it do? Well, Pegasus is a, is a CubeSat, a 1U CubeSat. That means that the main body is uh, 10 by 10 centimeters, but it has uh, two large wings. So a wingspan is like 75 centimeters. 10 by 10 centimeters, that's, that, that's like 5 inches by 5 inches. That's really small. What does it do? Well, uh, Pegasus was working normally and transmitting uh, live video images. This video was being injected into the Internet using EarthCam. As far as we know, millions of people were looking at this live video transmissions from Earth. I mean, from what we know, was the first webcam in space publicly available. So do you know where Pegasus is right now? Yes, we know it's in orbit. Uh, he just passed it in range of our ground station maybe an hour ago, but we cannot get the full transmission, I mean the clear transmission, because the antenna is, is rotating with the body of the satellite. I mean, it must have cost a lot of money to uh, start Ecuador Space Program, probably many, many millions of dollars. How do Ecuadorians feel about this? Well, that's the very good part. Our program is civilian. That means that it's financed by uh, the private uh, enterprise here in Ecuador. The government participates and supports it uh, with some funding. But so far, what the government invested in this was only $700,000 in the launch of the two satellites the one that was launched, and the one that is going to be launched in November. So we have tried to do everything ourselves. That is uh, maybe the most important part, and that's why the people feel so invigorated by the program, because we have uh, tried to do everything ourselves with our resources, with our, uh, with our own technology, and, um, and people feel that we are uh, getting into a new era. And what is Ecuador's kind of space mission? What, what, why does your country want to be in space? We're going to space not for conquering. I mean, conquering space is not possible. But we're going for space for ourselves, prove ourselves capable. My country has always had a problem that this myth that we cannot do or fare well in technological matters. You may know my country by uh, the bananas or chocolate or the soccer team. Yeah, right. But not for, for its technology. We want to change that. I heard one other thing that uh, Pegasus does, aside from take uh, video clips of, of Earth and share them on the Internet, is that it broadcasts Ecuador's national anthem? Yes, he plays at the, our, our national anthem and sends uh, Morse code and SSTV transmissions via audio. Is it a good song? <laughs> it is a good song, at least for us. Commander Ronnie Nader, who directs a country's space agency in Ecuador, EXA, speaking to us from ground station Hermes in Guayaquil, Ecuador. Thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you. This is PRI. Hi, Marco Werman. There's nothing quite like good storytelling. When they tell a story about the good, you suddenly... Uh, find yourself with the love with this girl. And it is very important for a Dengbesh to tell the story with a poetic way. Coming up on The World, a revival of Kurdish storytelling in eastern Turkey. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, 
now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. This week, Myanmar's President Tensein made a state visit to the United States. It was the first time in nearly 50 years that one of that country's leaders was welcomed by the U.S. with full diplomatic fanfare. The visit was of special interest to all the Burmese exiles and expats living in the U.S. For some, the thought of returning home is now more appealing as our country slowly sheds its authoritarian past and opens up more to democracy. Reporter Bruce Wallace met with two students from Myanmar in New York. Here's a paradoxical thing about growing up in a country ruled by a repressive government. Sometimes you need to leave that country to learn what's really going on there. In our history curriculums, there's a whole chunks that are not there. Wei Yi Kain is a 25-year-old graduate student at Columbia University in New York. She's from Yangon, Myanmar's largest city. And as a child, I was very curious, and I would ask, and my parents would just give a very broad, general answer. It was only here, when I got here, that I realized that there were a lot of things that I didn't know. Kain didn't know much about the mass anti-government uprisings in 1988. The life of Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi was another mystery. The activist was under house arrest for most of Kain's life. It's sort of like in Harry Potter, uh, how did they call it, the Lord Voldemort? He who must not be named or something like that? It was pretty much that. I knew I shouldn't say her name, especially in public. Kain's friend and fellow Columbia grad student, Jaw Sit Nang, says he never even saw Suu Kyi's picture in Myanmar, also known as Burma. I have seen her picture only once in my life, like 17 years and a half in Burma. It was at a friend's house. I was like, oh, that's, is that, is that, you know? And then, and then my mom said, like, no, don't talk about it. A clear mark of how much has changed for Jaw Sitnang and for Myanmar came last September. Aung San Suu Kyi, now freed from house arrest, spoke at Columbia. Jaw Sitnang was second in line at the mic to ask her a question. Here's a recording from his moment. My ultimate goal is to work for the pe- my passion first of all I'm, so, I'm sorry this is the most remarkable moment in my life to see this. I'm very excited I cried already he so. composed himself and then asked Su Chi if he could work with her if he moved back to Myanmar Wei Yi Kain was there too she asked Su Chi what young Burmese like her studying abroad could do for the country here's what Su Chi said if you really want to come back and help Burma you must do it with a sense of humility grateful for the opportunity to serve, grateful that you are able to give what others cannot give. I think that's a great necessity. Both of the Columbia students are now planning their return to Myanmar. Jawsit Nang just received his degree in social work this week and wants to set up after-school programs back home. He says he wouldn't have been so sure about heading back there two years ago, before things started changing. But the students' parents are a bit hesitant. My parents are definitely more cautious Definitely not as optimistic as us. They want me to come back, but they also want me to reconsider, if possible, to stay here because they don't know if this change is for real and if it's for permanent. The two aren't totally starry-eyed. They know there are grim realities on the ground, lots of poverty, poor health and education, continuing human rights abuses. They also realize that being in the U.S. has allowed them to advocate for their home in ways they couldn't back there. 
They formed a Myanmar community group at Columbia and have met high-level Myanmar officials. Last weekend, they were at a Washington event with President Thein Sein. Never in a million years could we do this in Yangon or in Myanmar. This is something that is very, very unique in that sense that we are here and we're able to speak to them when they come here. Their Myanmar student group is explicitly apolitical. They want to be able to work with whatever government's in power. And that, proactive students working with the government, is another thing that's very new in Myanmar. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace, New York City. It's easy to look at some aspects of culture in Japan and just scratch your head. Anime, the feature-length and serialized cartoon films from Japan, for example. It's not just the otherworldly stories in anime that are odd, but so is the Japanese fanaticism for the characters, dressing up like them, collecting action figures and books, making shrines to these imaginary people. And yet, when you come to an American anime convention, you suddenly realize that it's not just the Japanese who make you scratch your head. This morning, I went to Anime Boston 2013, its 10th edition. It's one of the largest anime conventions in the U.S. In the massive convention center, thousands of people are talking and laughing and taking photos of each other. It's a strange world where costumes are the norm. Men wearing scary masks, girls in bikinis and thigh-high boots, and even a guy covered in green body paint. My tour guide into this world is professor and author Ian Condry from MIT. His new book is called The Soul of Anime. Today starts with the opening ceremony where the guests of honor come up and get their adulation from the fans. There's screenings all day. There's a cosplay event. There's anime music videos. Uh, and there's a lot of what you see all around you, which is small groups of people chatting and getting to know each other. And explain what cosplay is. Cosplay means is short for costume play, and it basically means dressing up in the outfit of your favorite character. It seems like a, a very Japanese thing, but obviously the Americans haven't had any problem climbing into that whole kind of fanaticism. It's like anime generally. Disney uh, brought animation to Japan, but then anime spreads to the world. So too with cosplay, some early Japanese fans went to Star Trek conventions, saw them dressing up in the U.S. and brought that back to Japan, and now it's become a Japanese thing as well. So how old is anime? It was really the mid-50s is when the big Disney hits, Bambi and Snow White, came through Japan and the world, and that's when the Japanese animation system began around then as well. And when you compare, say, those early Disney films like Bambi uh, with some of the early animes or even later ones, do you see kind of influences? Absolutely. If Disney was the father of American animation, Tezuka was one of the fathers of Japanese animation. Tezuka made Astro Boy. But what's interesting is Astro Boy beat Bambi in a really important way, which is that Tezuka figured out how to make animation cheap. And although it's not as pretty as Disney animation, what Tezuka understood was the fan excitement around characters is what mattered. And that even if the animation wasn't that exciting, the character was excited. And I think you see that today with the cosplay and all the dressing up that's going on. So Ian, as you walk around this convention here in Boston, do you recognize characters yourself? Oh yeah, absolutely. And even if you don't recognize the characters, you want to find out who they are. And I think that's the excitement of the anime world. There's always more to explore. It's a vast world where people are intensely involved with it. And that kind of excitement is contagious. To get an insider's view of the anime world, Ian wanted me to meet one of the guest speakers at the convention, Tomohiko Ito. He's a director at one of the largest animation studios in Japan, Aniplex. Ito had never been to an anime convention in the U.S. 
this is Tomohiko Ito. So this, this nice is Tomohiko Ito. He's the director of Sword Art Online, right. the hit anime series uh, that's sweeping the world. So Tomohiko, tell me first of all, what's in it for you? Why come here to Boston? You know, of course, we had heard that Sword Art Online is quite popular here in the U.S., so I kind of want to see for myself what level of popularity, how much fan awareness there is. So we asked Anaplex to see if it would be possible for us to come to Boston. So just your first impressions, how do the fans in the United States compare with the anime fans in Japan? I feel that one of the biggest things is, of course, our hotel is right next to the convention center. And even at the point of yesterday, I could already, walking around the hotel, be like, hmm, I bet they're here for the convention. And that fact that I could instantly recognize that they were most likely fans and attendees is a very big difference already right there. Have you spotted anybody uh, dressed up from characters from Sword Art online? The main character of Sword Art Online, of course, is Kirito. And I already saw one Kirito cosplayer in the hotel the other day. And I have to say, wow, he looks cool. Back out on the floor, I met Sarah Sullivan, Sully she's called. She's with Funimation, a company that dubs and distributes anime in the U.S. She's a regular at these conventions. This is actually my 225th convention. I see people all over the country that are spending every last dime going to anime conventions. They go to five or six of them a year, use all of their vacation time for them. I just look forward to coming out here, even though I'm going to be working all weekend, because I have so many wonderful friends that I only really see at conventions. It's a completely unique experience, especially anime conventions, because we are so welcoming of other genres as well. And that's exactly what I learned from talking with some of the cosplayers here, like Ben, who's wearing a red robe and a white cardboard beard over his chin. I am not from an anime. I'm from a video game of The Legend of Zelda. I'm the very first character in the game. I say, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this as I present the sword to the hero. Then I met Amber and Jake, she in a platinum blonde wig, he in a black tux and white eye mask. They're dressed up to look like their favorite anime characters. Um, well, my costume is Princess Serenity from Sailor Moon. Um, she's the princess of the kingdom on the moon. <laughs> You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Um, oh, it's just, it's just fun. <laughs> subsequently, like the princess of like, like the solar system yes, or something. She does take over the solar system yeah. by the end. Are you laughing also because it's just a little bit silly? Of course it's silly. That's, that's part of the fun. Indeed. And after a morning immersed in the world of anime, even I felt underdressed in my jeans and T-shirt. Maybe next year I'll dust off my Pokemon costume and join in the fun. Just kidding. I don't own one. But if you want to see pictures of Amber and Jake and Ben and some of the other people I met at Anime Boston 2013, just go to theworld.org. From Pokemon music now to Turkey, strangely enough, where Kurdish culture is having something of a renaissance. Laws banning Kurdish culture and language and culture have been removed from the books, and there are even efforts to broker a peace between Kurdish militants and the Turkish government. So public expressions of Kurdish culture are not only legal, but in some regions, they're officially supported, too. In the main Kurdish city of southeast Turkey, officials have opened a cultural center for traditional Kurdish storytellers to practice their ancient art. From Diyarbakir, Matthew Brunwasser reports. Somewhere at some point, 
a woman longed for a man named Sinan. At the Deng Besh house in Diyarbakir, a master Deng Besh, or storyteller, sings a tale from the collective memory of the Kurdish people. A dozen storytellers, mostly elderly men, sit in the courtyard of a beautifully restored 19th century stone house. Most of the men come every day. They sit and chat and share songs with each other and any visitors who might be here. Sayyid Han Boyajö says in the old days, it was very prestigious to be a Dengbesh. When a Dengbesh went to a village, people would gather and welcome him like a holy man. When I went to a village, I would be given dinner and I would start singing and not stop until the morning. Dengbesh use no musical accompaniment, and they never use any written materials. Mateen Ozjelik is the supervisor of the Dengbesh house. He says the stories are often about love and conflicts, wars and rebellions. And the story can continue one hour, sometimes two hours, sometimes three hours. So to be a Dengbesh, uh, you should have got a very good memory. You should know Kurdish language very good. It should affect Uh, It's not just story, it's a kind of poem. The words is very effective. When they describe a mountain, you feel the mountains. When they tell a story about a girl, you suddenly uh, find yourself with a love with this girl. And it is very important for a Dengbesh to tell the story with a poetic way. The Turkish government banned Kurdish until 10 years ago, making it very dangerous to be a Dengbesh. Mehmet Gyuli was arrested after an informer told the police that he was a Kurdish storyteller. They checked my car stereo, Gyuli says. They found a cassette and played it. It was in Kurdish. The policemen arrested me, blindfolded me, put me in handcuffs and took me to the basement of a police station. Gyuli says he was tortured at the station. He says he wasn't an activist then. But after the incident, he says he was more determined than ever to keep up the storytelling tradition. The government tried to kill the Kurdish language and culture and to make us all Turks, Gyuli says. But the Dengbesh didn't allow this to happen. If we didn't preserve the memory of all the brutality, killing and pressure against the Kurdish people, it would be forgotten. These days, few young people come to learn from the masters. One who does is Jafere Farkina. He's 22 and perhaps the most famous. This is a recording from a public performance. Organizers hope the Dengbesh House helps the ancient tradition develop as well as promote it through tourism publishing and recording. The latest project is a new song about the execution-style murder in January of three Kurdish women activists in Paris.
For the world, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Diyarbakir, Turkey. You can see where the epic songs of Kurdish culture are now freely expressed. We have a slideshow all about the Dengbesh house at theworld.org. This is The World from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. They're obsessed with engineering in India. The thinking is your future is set if you just graduate from one of the top engineering schools. So half a million Indian students take the entrance exam every year. The competition is so intense that many students leave high school to attend special classes to cram for the exam. Bianca Vasquez-Tonas reports from the town of Kota. There's a joke about Indian fathers. It goes like this. A father says to his son, you can study any field you want, as long as it's engineering. That's my first example of India's obsession with engineering. Here's the second, Dipanchu Arora. Listen to how he imagines his ideal profession. It's a very enjoyable life, being an engineer. We get higher pays, many more advantages. Dipanchu is only 15. He's convinced that engineering is the only option, so much so that he's overlooking one potentially important obstacle. Are you good at math and science? No, I'm not uh, good at math and science. It's a challenge for me. So Dipanchu left home after 10th grade and came to the town of Kota, the town's famous in India for the dozens of cram schools that prepare students for the IIT exam. The IIT is the Indian Institute of Technology, the holy grail of education in India. Dipanchu spends six days a week sitting in classes like these. Forget sports, literature, or history, just math, physics, and chemistry for two years. We have to struggle, but after that, it's the life is, wow. Listening to Dipanchu, I can't help but think he's exaggerating. I mean, there must be other options that don't require expensive cram school for subjects he's not even good at. It costs as much as a year of university. Engineering is not the only option, but of, of course not many Indians know that. Murtaza Falasia is 18, and he says he's not like many of the other students here. He's sincerely interested in engineering, but he failed the exam. So he's here in Kota for a year of tutoring. I asked him and some of his friends why young people don't study liberal arts in India. If you take an arts, then you're scoffed at, you're made fun of, because they don't pay well. They tell me there are classes in things like psychology. And if you take those courses, but you're, you're going nowhere. <laughs> yeah, you cannot most... expect a future over like taking a psychology in India. In India. Yeah, in India. In India. Uh, all right, so maybe yeah, not, <laughs> not a very, well, of course you can expect a future, but not a very appealing future. <laughs> According to Murtaza and his friends, science is the only subject worth studying, but only if it leads to an engineering or medical degree. They're just looking to improve their standard of living, and it's not really the, the want of uh, knowledge or that, that really motivates them. It's basically a better standard of living to achieve that. The problem is, IIT only has about 10,000 seats, and half a million students take the entrance exam each year. That's about 50 applicants for every seat. Compare that to Harvard, where 17 students apply for every student admitted. Most of the kids applying to IIT are boys. 
16-year-old Deepali Tiwari is one of the few girls in Kota cramming for the exam. In my whole family, no one till yet has cracked that exam. And it's a kind of prestige, you know. She's aware that on average, five kids kill themselves around exam time. It doesn't surprise her. Sometimes we even get so depressed that we we can understand why those guys do that. And parents say that they, ex- they expect a lot from us. Besides the emotional toll on young people, this obsession with engineering has an unintended effect. The country has a shortage of lawyers, architects, and psychologists. Ironically, it doesn't even have enough professors to teach all the students enrolled in its elite engineering schools. That lack of professional diversity reflects another potentially deeper problem, one that could threaten its future competitive edge. Uh, We are a risk-averse country, uh, and innovation requires a lot of risk-takers. Venkatesh Kumar is a professor of public policy at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai. He's been helping the government reform its higher education plans. Right now, the plan is to encourage more students to go to college and later pursue research, all kinds of research, like students in the United States. They are able to take risks. They are encouraged to make mistakes. They are encouraged to uh, innovate. But for Dipanchu Aurora, the 15-year-old who says he's bad at math, it's simple. He'd like to be an air traffic controller, but the job doesn't pay enough. No good college, then no good job, then uh, salary is less. Then future is spoiled, no good wife, no good anything else. So he's boning up for the engineering entrance exam next year. He and half a million other would-be engineers. For The World, I'm Bianca Baskas-Tonis, Kota, India. Bianca's report is part of the Global Story Project with support from the Open Society Foundations and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. And finally, the Colombian band Bomba Estéreo visited our studio recently. Three members of the band, two guitars, one voice. They agreed to take one of their typical electro-cumbia tracks and unplug it for us. The tune was Sintiendo. It's off their latest album, Elegencia Tropical. Guitarist Simon Mejia described Sintiendo as a danceable ballad with sentimental lyrics. He also explained what vocalist Liliana Somet sings about on the track. Sintiendo translates to feeling. Liliana entered this new stage about singing, not about the outside, but about the inside, no? About the, the feelings and about how we are feeling today, how we, how we perceive life, how we perceive love, how we perceive the world as, as Colombians that we are. And so this, this kind of songs just came up, no? Mm-hmm. Sintiendo el alma del cuerpo para respirar, which are songs that are a little bit slow. But when we play them live, it's, it's, it's very funny because it's a sentimental song. It, it could be a really power ballad, but, it's, but the people are dancing. Todo lo que estoy sintiendo, todo lo que estoy sintiendo. Todo lo que llevo dentro, todo lo que llevo dentro. Todo lo que estoy sintiendo, todo lo que estoy sintiendo. Todo lo que llevo dentro, todo lo que llevo dentro. Sintiendo. Sonriendo 
sentó y empezó a pensar en mí. Y empezó a pensar en mí. Colombia's Bomba Estéreo performing an acoustic version of their tune, Sintiendo. You can compare the unplugged and original versions at theworld.org. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a wonderful weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.